and we will be looking on this low tax Sunday at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you want to turn there in your Bibles. Uh, to really, really understand what's going on in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, you have to know uh, a little bit of the context. And really, this ends a discussion that Paul began all the way back in the beginning of chapter 8. And uh, the question he raised uh, was a question that apparently the Corinthians had written to him in the form of some kind of a letter and was asking about certain specific issues. And one of the questions he had asked, or that they had asked and raised, was if it was okay to eat meat offered to idols. And uh, there was a lot of idol worship, a lot of pagan temples in, uh, in Corinth. And it's very likely that the majority of, of the meat available in the markets, if not all of it, was somehow touched by uh, idol worship. And so this is kind of an important question then, is it okay to eat? And Paul addresses this on several levels. In chapter 8 he says, you know, first of all, first principle is we don't want to do anything that would cause a brother to stumble or sin. So that's a consideration when you're going to eat meat uh, that you think may be offered to an idol. Second thing in chapter 9 he talks about, you know, we do have great freedom in Christ. He says, you know, really... You do have great freedom to eat this meat. These idols are nothing. If you recognize it's just foolishness on their part, it's true you have great freedom in that, but Paul warns them not to use their freedom just to serve themselves. He says you have great freedom in Christ, but we're not to use that freedom only for our own comfort and benefit. That instead we are to use that freedom always in service to the gospel. And that the motives behind everything we do should be that... uh, that it impacts and moves forward the gospel. So that's a consideration. Is eating meat going to compromise the message of the gospel, of the cross? And then in chapter 10, he concludes his argument, his, his answer to their questions. And, uh, and in that, he raises some other issues and questions about dealing with temptation, about idol worship itself. And um, basically, to sum up what he says here in chapter 10, uh, is this. He says, you know, one of the things you've got to consider is that you are getting dangerously close when you start going into the temple, start joining in their parties, not just buying meat in the market, but actually going and eating the meat with them. You are getting dangerously close to idol worship. And uh, it's apparent as you read through this and as you study what was going on here that the Corinthians had got this idea that, you know, we've been saved, we've been touched by God, we've been baptized, we've received the Holy Spirit, we take communion, and therefore we are basically bulletproof. We are invincible to sin. And they had this idea that they could just go into these pagan temples where there's all this wild stuff going on, prostitution, drinking, not just eating meat, but, you know, all kinds of terrible things. And that they could participate in that environment and come away unscathed because they were immune because of the, of the cross. Uh, well, not only is it bad theology, it's pretty much just stupid. And that's pretty much what Paul says. So there you have the message in a nutshell. Uh, now, for a lot of us, we would say, well, you know, this, this passage we really doesn't apply to us because we don't worship idols. <laughs> well, we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, it, uh, whether or not we think we worship idols or not, the truth is that, that we can tend, like the Corinthians, to believe we are bulletproof. 
that we, like the Corinthians, can think, you know, we're pretty much immune to sin. And uh, we wouldn't use perhaps the same criteria they would, but maybe we look at it this way. You know, I have been a Christian for so long. Some of you have been a Christian for, I don't know, 900 years or something. And, uh, you know, you've walked with God since before you were born, you know, and you, 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 you just see yourself as, you know, those kind of temptations just wouldn't affect me anymore. I'm beyond that. Or maybe you think, you know, I read my Bible, I pray, I had this amazing time of worship with God, and so I, I'm immune to, like, the sin that normal people deal with, right? Maybe little sins, I know I have my few little weaknesses, but I'm pretty much immune to the big stuff. Okay, and if you feel that way, I'll have you raise your hands. Uh, you know, we think, you know, this morning we came to church, we had this amazing time of worship, and I appreciate Debbie and Dan leading and just leading us into God's presence and just knowing we have this amazing Father God who loves us, who gave His Son for us. We walk away thinking, man, God loves me. Sin can't touch me. I'm Teflon coated by God's love, right? Well, uh, it doesn't take long for us to realize that that's not true. And I don't know if this has been your experience, but often it's mine. That I will have amazing times of worship. I will have amazing times in God's presence uh, in church or my own walk with God. I'll go out five minutes later, I'll be driving down the road and some Thai person who drives terrible will, you know, cut me off and I'll be just going, we kill them, you know. Okay, now I'm, I'm immune, I'm bulletproof. Uh, or we go, you know, home, we get attacked by our computer like I did this morning, we want to just bust the thing to pieces, we start cursing, you know, heaven would rain down on this miserable piece of machinery. And uh, we, we find that we are in spite of our worship, in spite of our walk with God, always live dangerously on the edge. And I really believe what Paul is saying here is that we are always just one step away from a great fall. We are always one moment away from falling uh, and plunging off the cliff. We are, in a sense, living constantly on the edge of this great cliff, and uh, walking around, and, and it's just really that easy that we could take one step off and fall. Um, and maybe we look at leaders uh, that have been defective. And here's another illustration of how we think we're bulletproof. We look at leaders who have fallen. You know, the Ted Haggards, and you can go on down the list of other great leaders who had great and successful ministries, and they fell. And how do you think about those guys? Uh, Oftentimes we think of them this way. Well, they were just corrupt, messed up people. You know, they were obviously not, their ministries weren't real. It's all just straw. They, uh, they were just fooling people all along. And they're really just bad people. And it was, it was bound to happen. Praise God, I'm not like them. Right? Do you ever think that way? That they're defective and it's a good thing I'm spiritual and I'm not defective. Well, think about this. Uh, some of the greatest leaders in Scripture fell. Moses himself, we're going to look at the example of Israel. Moses himself, who recorded the five books of the law, who went to the tent of meeting every day, who lived in God's presence, who glowed in the dark because he spent so much time with God, uh, disqualified himself from the promised land because he fell in a moment of weakness. Okay? Uh, King David, uh, at the end of Second uh, Samuel, he is described as the sweet psalmist of Israel. A man who knew how to worship God. I mean, he was the best. 
He was a worshiper of worshippers, and to this day, half of the songs we sing are, are the words of David, who knew how to worship God, who knew how to walk with God, who was a man after God's own heart. And what happened to David? He fell. One day, one moment, he fell into immorality with Bathsheba, and he killed her husband. Okay? Uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul himself realized how dangerously close he was to destruction, to falling into sin. And that's why at the end of chapter 9 he says, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. That I might end up like Moses or David, uh, falling off the cliff into sin, into moral failure or some other kind of failure. And so he writes this warning to, to the Corinthians. He says, don't be stupid. Uh, he says in verse 12, in fact, he says, if you think you are standing strong, be careful, for you may fall into the same sin. Okay, if you think you may stand, watch out, literally, because you are just one step away from falling. But remember that the temptations that come into your life are no different from what others experience, and God is faithful. He will keep the temptation from becoming so strong that you can't stand up against it. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you will not give in to it. Uh, he says, if you think you're invincible, watch out. The testing and temptation that face all the other human beings on this planet are just as much a problem for us, no matter how long you've been a Christian, no matter how spiritual you are, no matter how great and deep your walk with Christ is, be careful if you think you are bulletproof, if you think you're invincible. Well, you may be thinking, well, well shoot, if, if reading the Bible and prayer and worship all that doesn't really help, what's the point? Well, it does help, but we've got to put things in perspective. And so let's look at what, uh, what Paul has to say um, first of all, he says this. He, he starts with an example from Israel. Let me read, starting at verse 1. He says, I don't want you to forget this, but forget, dear brothers and sisters, what happened to our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. God guided all of them by sending a cloud that moved along ahead of them, and he brought them all safely through the waters of the Red Sea on dry ground. As followers of Moses, they were baptized into the cloud and they were baptized into the sea, and all of them ate the same spiritual food, and all of them drank the same spiritual water, for they all drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them, and that rock was Christ. Yet, after all this, God was not pleased with most of them, and he left them strung about throughout the wilderness. Um, he says this, he says, you know, you think that God's blessings make us invincible. Well, let's look at Israel. Was Israel blessed? And he, he brings up here a picture of Israel's deliverance from Egypt, the Exodus. And he says, you know, Israel was baptized by two great events that mark their salvation. And the first event was being baptized by the cloud. And if you remember, there was a pillar of cloud or fire, depending on day or night, that guided them through the, through the wilderness. And it was a pillar that offered both guidance as well as protection. And it's a picture of God leading his people out of death, out of oppression, out of slavery, into new life in him and freedom in him. Secondly, he says you were baptized also by going through the sea. 
And of course, they weren't literally baptized. It doesn't mean that when they went through, somehow they got wet, like there was a spray or something. That would be sprinkling, and we don't believe that. Well, some of us might. Um, it's, it's symbolic, and he's talking here symbolically of their salvation event. Just as we look at baptism as a major mark of salvation, he's saying they were, they were baptized. They experienced this great salvation event. And it was seen in God's guidance and also in God taking them through the Red Sea where he rescued them. As their enemy was pressing down about to destroy them, God opened up a way of escape. He led them through the Red Sea and then he closed the waters in over his enemy, destroying them. Great picture of salvation. And uh, he said that, that uh, this is not a guarantee that you're bulletproof. Okay? Just because you've been saved doesn't mean you no longer are susceptible to sin. Uh, in this, he, he, he also mentions, he said, he talks about the spiritual food, spiritual drink, drinking from the spiritual rock, which was Christ. Uh, that's kind of confused some people. What does he mean by that? What is this spiritual food? Does it mean that the manna wasn't real or that the water wasn't real? Well, interestingly, uh, we in our Western thinking uh, tend to split and divide the spiritual from the physical. We think of God's physical blessings in terms of what he gives in food and clothing and shelter, and then his spiritual blessings in terms of things that God gives us in our heart. But Paul, and especially the Israelites, didn't see God's blessings that way. They saw God's blessings as one. Whether they came through physical means or through spiritual means, they all represented God's spiritual blessing. And it's such a great picture here of the rock, which is Christ. Uh, Christ was the one who walked with them through the wilderness, providing all of their needs. Uh, He gave them food, physical food. He gave them water, physical water to drink. And it says that God, step by step, was meeting all of their needs in the wilderness. He was providing for them in the wilderness. He was blessing them. And that, that blessing was spiritual. You know, in our own lives, we get a great glimpses of this. When God provides for us, when He miraculously gives us clothes or food or money, when he provides for the physical needs of our life, is it a spiritual blessing? Well, it is. And it's meant to encourage uh, and show us God's love, not only on a physical level, but on a spiritual level. Uh, the same should have been true for Israel, but they largely missed the point. Okay, as God gave them all of this stuff, it kind of went over their head that it was God's outpouring of his love and goodness. That in these simple acts of manna, of bread, of water, God was showing his love and goodness. God was showing his Father's heart toward them. Um, this was illustrated in, in my own life this week. We, uh, at, at, at the second children's home, we, have, we started a second children's home full of kids now. We just got two more kids, which makes it absolutely full and overflowing. And uh, we praise God for that. But we haven't been able to buy them a refrigerator yet. And uh, so they were in urgent need of a refrigerator. So I told Dow, my secretary, I said, okay, we got, this week we've got to get a refrigerator. Now she, Dow, you've got to understand, Dow is, our, she's really an expert purchasing agent. That's really what she does. She knows how to find bargains. And anytime we tell her to go buy something, it's a mission for her to get the absolute best product at the absolute cheapest price. And she's tied, she knows how to bargain, she knows how to wheel and deal, she's very good at this. 
Well, after two or three days of hunting and searching and deciding on the exact refrigerator, I mean the exact refrigerator at the exact price she wanted, she said, okay, this is the one, and she decided to go buy this refrigerator. She goes to the store, uh, gets in line to pay for it, gets out uh, her credit card, um, swipes the credit card, the machine's broke. Wait and messed around about 30 minutes later, say, well, we can't, you can't buy it here. You're going to have to come back later. She says, okay, all right. So she leaves, does some more errands, goes back about an hour later, the store is closed. <laughs> well, you know, you know how it is when you get, you get to the point where you, you, know, you know what you want and it's all right there, you just want to get it done. So this is about 6 o'clock at night. She's not going to give up. She goes to another store. Well, they didn't have, they didn't have the refrigerator, didn't have hardly any, didn't have what she wanted. She goes to another store, same thing, nothing there, no options, not going to happen. So finally she's frustrated. She's thinking, man, God, what is going on? She goes home, stores are closed. Thinks, what is going on? Finally, 10 o'clock at night, uh, Meow, the director of our children's home, calls, and she said, did you buy a refrigerator yet? And Dad goes, no, I've been trying. I've been trying, I'm trying. I can't buy the refrigerator. And Meow said, well, praise God, because I just got a phone call. Somebody's going to give us a new refrigerator. Not a new one. Give us a refrigerator. A nice one. Uh, a very nice, expensive one. It was used, but very nice. Twice, twice as good as the one we were going to buy. Well, Dow came in the office the next morning, just so excited uh, that she couldn't buy this refrigerator. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it wasn't just a physical thing. For her, it was very much a spiritual thing. It was very much God moving in her life and moving in the activities of what we were doing to show his goodness. You see, that's the way it is when God blesses us. It's not just a physical thing. It's not God just handing out money, handing out gifts. It's God showing us his involvement in our lives. It is a spiritual thing. And we should never minimize uh, these blessings that God pours out in us every day. And that's exactly what Israel did. They began to minimize and take for granted the good heart of God that's pictured in these things. They were spiritual blessings. I love that picture. That Christ was with them and they drank from the water of Christ, the spiritual water, that he was pouring into their life his love and goodness, his character, his provision, through these simple acts of, of giving food and water and taking care of their daily needs. Uh, but in spite of all that, in spite of God's constant effort to show his spiritual blessing in their life, because they didn't see it, because they didn't perceive it, uh, it says that God strung them out across the wilderness. The, the, the Greek phrase there is really very vivid and powerful. That God left them just strung out, laid out like, like a war zone, dead across the wilderness. Um, now those who, who don't believe in eternal security kind of jump on this to say, see, if you, if you don't really watch it, God's going to take away your salvation. Well, I think the picture here is deeper than that. You know, I think that God did save them. And, and it doesn't speak of their eternal judgment or doom. But it does speak of this. It speaks of a person who was saved, who uh, came to salvation through God and through Christ, which was with them, but never saw the full blessing of God in their life because of sin, because of their rebellion against God, because of a heart that failed to see God's goodness. They never came to the promised land the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise. And what's significant in this picture of Israel is that this blessing 
this promised land is not heavenly or future, but it's very much earthly. A lot of Christians, I think, believe that the Christian life is the, is, is, is the exodus. It's getting saved. It's spending the rest of your life wandering around in a desert so that someday you can die and cross Jordan's stormy banks and get to heaven. Okay, we have hymns written about that, actually. Right? Uh, and that's the Christian life. It's this wandering around this barren desert where someday you'll drop dead and then you get to go to the good life. Well, that's not the picture And in fact, what Paul is warning against here is exactly that. He's saying, because you are playing with sin, you are endangering yourself of cutting yourself out of God's blessing here and now. Okay? Now, it will have eternal implications as well. Okay? What what we experience and don't experience here does affect our eternal existence. But what Paul's talking about is you're going to miss out you're going to disqualify yourself from what God wants to bless you with here of his presence now. You know, when Paul said, I fear that I might be disqualified, do you think Paul was in doubt of losing his salvation? I don't think so. I I think Paul, his salvation was pretty secure and firm. But he feared being disqualified and missing out on the good things that God wanted to pour out into his life. Of spending his life, as it were, wandering around in a barren, empty wilderness because sin had cost him the blessing. That's what I think he's talking about. So he says, this is an example. Okay, this is written for our benefit, he says. Um, and the example is this, that getting saved, having this experience with God, drinking from God's blessing through this rock that's poured out, through Jesus that's pouring out his goodness, experiencing that blessing in our life, even encountering it personally, is not, does not make us bulletproof. It does not make us invincible. The reality is that we can be a God worshiper, we can be in the Word, we can have this amazing walk with God, and we are still only one step away from the edge. We are always only one step away from a great fall. Well, why is that? Well, Paul continues on. He says, these events happen to warn us so that we would not crave evil things as they did or worship idols as some of them did. Uh, The problem is this. The problem is the cravings of our human heart. The reality is that no matter how spiritual we become, we don't ever stop being human on this side of death. In fact, later on he says, you know, no temptation has gripped you, has seized you, except what is common to all humanity. It is part of the human condition that we constantly have a heart that longs and desires and craves. Uh, and, and the problem is not so much in the craving or the desiring. It's in seeking to have those things met and fulfilled and satisfied from other gods. Okay, that's where the idol worship part comes in. Uh, what is idol worship? Well, it's not necessarily going to a temple where there's little statues and images that people offer incense to. Okay, technically that is idol worship. But when, when the Bible talks about idol worship, it's not just the image. Okay? The image represents a god. And those who go to the temple and offer incense to images, most of them would tell you, we know that this statue isn't the god, but it represents the god. And what it's talking about here is anytime we look to other gods to satisfy us. We crave to have our 
our heart, the lungs of our heart met and satisfied by other thing, things other than God. And when we put anything in the place of the rock, which is the wellspring that provides for us, it becomes a God. It becomes something that we turn to and seek to to satisfy us when God wants to be the sustainer and satisfier of everything in our life. God put those longings and cravings in our heart so that we would hunger for Him and so that He could pour out in meeting those needs His spiritual blessings. And when we seek to have those things met in any other place besides God and by His hand, it becomes an idol. It becomes something that we look to to give us things and in turn uh, love them for what they give. Okay, not only do we look for them to provide for us, but we turn our heart's affection to those things. We think that those things will make us happy, and so we love those things. We play with those things. We treasure those things. That is idolatry. Uh, in Thailand, I'll tell you the truth, and you may disagree with it, that's okay, because I'm not God and I'm not inspired, so you can disagree. But I don't, I don't think that the idolatry in Thailand, I don't think most of it takes place in Buddhist temples. Okay, I think Buddhism in Thailand is about as dead a religion as Christianity is in most of the rest of the world. It's something people do out of tradition and guilt and duty. And those aren't idols, okay? Idols promise to satisfy. I don't know too many Buddhists who really believe that those little statues and idols are going to make them happy or fulfill them. You know where the real temples are, I believe, in Thailand? It's airport plaza. Okay, that's where the real idols are. That's where Thai people are going to be satisfied. They are buying cell phones, they are buying clothes, they are buying MP3 players and all kinds of electronic gadgets. You know, most Thai people who make a fraction of what I do have ten times the cell phone I do. You know? Did you notice that? They've got the toys, they've got the gadgets. Why? Because they think these things will make them happy. Okay, they have learned well from us, haven't they? Uh, they worship the same idol we do, many of them. It's materialism, it's wealth, it's things, okay, thinking this will make me happy. I itch for those things because I think those things will fulfill me. All right? Okay, they have, they have taken over our gods. They have taken over the idols of the West, sadly. Um, and Paul gives four examples out of the wilderness, four pictures of what this craving looks like and how they gave not only, they, they, they longed for these things to satisfy, but they also gave their love and affection to these things. First one he talks about, he says, uh, he says, the people celebrated with feasting and drinking and they indulged themselves in pagan revelry. I love that, pagan revelry. Um, Basically, literally, it says this. It says they ate, they drank, and they danced. If you take a literal translation from the Greek, that's what it says. They ate, they drank, and they danced. Well, there you go. I knew there was something evil about dancing. Man, it's wicked. Of course, you know, if we put dancing in that category, eating and drinking would also have to be uh, wicked. So we got a problem here, because I really like the eating and drinking part. Um, what's the problem here? What is he talking about? Well, he's talking about reveling. That's a good word, reveling. What is reveling? Well, it means to celebrate. It means to have a party. Okay? 
Now, is it wrong to have parties? Yes, sir? How many think it's wrong to have a party? No, nobody's going nobody's to put their hand up on that one. Uh, the problem was not the partying. Okay, the instant that he's talking about here is when Israel, when Moses got up on the mountain and he was there for a very long time, got the Ten Commandments, came down 40 days later, and in the meantime, they had given up waiting for Moses and they had, they had compelled uh, Aaron to make a golden calf, an idol, and they worshipped it and they had a party, a big time party. I mean, they ate, they drank, they, uh, they got kind of carried away. They were dancing big time. Okay? Was God mad because they had a party? No. No, God was not mad because they had a party. He was angry at them because they were having a party. They were reveling. They were rejoicing. They were celebrating in a lesser God. Because they had exchanged the love for God and instead of reveling in Him, instead of enjoying and rejoicing in Him, they had given up on Him and were reveling in this lesser God, this false God. I believe God wants us to dance more. I believe God wants us actually to party more. I believe God loves rock and roll. Okay? I remember when I was a kid, when I was back in the 70s, you know, a lot of churches, and I had been told this, you know, God hates rock and roll, and uh, rock and roll is of, of the devil, and if you listen to rock and roll, so are you. And so I, for a long time, kind of stayed away from rock and roll because it scared me. But I believe God loves it because he loves us to celebrate him. The difference is he wants us to dance and rejoice and celebrate in him, not in ourselves or in the world or in just partying for the sake of partying. You know, David, in spite of the trouble he got into, uh, knew how to celebrate. And one day he says he danced before the Lord with such joy and so exuberantly that it embarrassed his wife. Remember that? And God was honored in it. And David said, you know, forget you, woman, you know, uh, I'm going to rejoice in God. I am going to celebrate God. I am going to party in God. Because that's what God calls us to. So that was the first mistake. It wasn't that they did this, but it was a problem that they did it in enjoying a lesser God, not the true living God. Second thing they did, he said, they engaged in all kinds of sexual immorality. Uh, as some of them did, causing 23,000 of them to die in one day. Um, Another incident, uh, this probably refers to a time when the Israelites engaged in all kinds of sexual immorality with Moabite women. Uh, The Moabites had no morals, uh, they had no standards, and they enticed and seduced the Israelite men into sexual immorality, into partying again, into all kinds of trouble and eventually worshiping other gods. Uh, it would be tempting to just focus on the sex part, but really this really symbolizes and represents all of our human appetites. As human beings, we have lots of cravings and appetites. The ap- sexual appetite happens to just be one of them. There are many others. Greed and power, materialism, um, food, uh, longing for the perfect body, fame and glory. The problem with all of these things uh, is that they are appetites that we can choose to fulfill God's way or not God's way. The problem is that for them, they, they, they entice their fleshly desires and appetites outside of God's plan, outside of God's provision. 
outside of God's blessing and goodness. So they, um, you know, they slept with these Moabite women. For many guys and ladies, immorality is a, is a huge temptation. It is, it is something that for them is one step away from a fall. One moment away from sin. Okay? It's a weakness. Uh, and it's not just a, a guy problem. It's a girl problem. Uh, guys struggle with lust. Girls struggle with being the object of lust. Dressing and acting and behaving in a way that would make them the object of desire. Okay, there's something uh, in, that, that is empowering in that. And it takes two. You know, the whole thing with the sex thing, it takes boys and girls. Well, I can take boys and boys too, but um, let's stick with just the boys and girls part. Um, it takes two. Okay? And it's, it's that appetite that's fed both ways. Okay? Uh, there's greed and power. Wanting more control and power over your world. Longing to be above others. Longing to be admired and respected by others. Okay? That's an appetite. It's a hunger. A materialism. We talked about that. The appetite for comfort and wealth. To live a life, really, of self-made blessing. That's the problem with materialism. Materialism says, I want all the money I can get to buy whatever I want when I want it. So that I can be comfortable. So I can bless myself daily. Okay, it's idolatry because it's not looking for God to bless us and provide and to fill us with His goodness. It's obtaining the power to bless myself whenever I want. Okay, that's materialism. Now, does it mean God doesn't want us to ever be powerful or wealthy or have things? Of course not. But He wants to be the source of those things. You know, does it mean that God doesn't want us as Christians to ever be sexual beings? Well, of course not. He invented it. It's a gift He gave to us. But He wants to be the provider of it through the channels He has ordained. So that's the difference between God's provision and idolatry. You go on down the list. Food, uh, longing for the perfect body. Ameri- I know in America, a recent survey, I can't remember the number, but they spend billions of dollars in exercise equipment, in exercise clubs. Now, is it wrong to be healthy or in shape? I hope not. You know, I want to be healthy and in shape. But if it's to impress people, if it becomes something that I build my entire identity around, it's a problem. Fame and glory. Wanting to be popular. Wanting to be cool. Wanting to never be called a nerd. You know? uh, wanting to be accepted. Does God want you to be accepted? Yes. Does He want you to be a nerd? Probably not. I don't think God really wants us all to be nerds. Uh, but He wants to put His character in us he wants us to make us people that have uh, qualities that people admire and respect because he's put it there, not because we are cool, because we wear the right clothes with the right labels or have the coolest sunglasses or you know, can bounce a ball and kick it really far or something. Okay? Those are not the, the basis of what makes us have significance or worth as a person. So... so um, so that was one of the problems with Israel, these appetites of their flesh. Another problem, he says, uh, in addition to that, um, nor should we put God to the test, as some of them did, and then died from snake bites. Putting God to the test. Um, this probably comes from Numbers 21, where it says this, Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient because of the journey. 
You go, man, this is taking too long. It's like every child in the back seat on a long trip. Are we there yet? That was what they were saying. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable manna. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of them died. Uh, This is a picture and a reminder that not all tempting or temptation or testing is our physical appetites. There's a whole other set of tests that we will encounter that have to do with our circumstances. Uh, Sometimes we are walking with God. We are not turning to fulfill our appetites uh, outside of God's plan. And we are on the long journey through the wilderness. And we get impatient because God is not meeting our needs as quickly or in the manner that we think he should. And instead of walking in faith, waiting upon God, we get impatient. And we doubt God's goodness. We say, God, this is taking too long. I'm being neglected. I'm being ignored. I have needs here that are not being met, and I'm not happy about it. What are you going to do about it, God? And, and Paul says that Israel put God to the test. Just a word of warning, that's a bad thing to do. Bad thing. Don't put God to the test. Uh, he'll send snakes, they'll bite you, you'll die. Okay, there's lots of snakes here, so you know, it's not a good place to be <laughs> testing this one. Right? Um, it ultimately comes down to a matter of faith. Uh, they did not believe in the goodness of God. Again, God was pouring out these spiritual blessings they were despising it. He was giving them his food to eat every day. They were detesting it. When we take the good things that God provides and we put it back in his face and say, God, that's not what I want. It's not good enough. You don't really know what I need. You don't really, you're not really taking care of me. You must not be a good and loving God. Dangerous words to say. And yet how often in our life do we get there where our finances are hard? Or our health is failing and we are struggling with uh, disease or sickness that we are frustrated with. Uh, We uh, get tired of living in a foreign place where people, you know, are constantly trying to kill us on the roads. Just driving here today, I almost hit people twice. It was a good day, you know. (laughs) Um, Struggling in a marriage that we feel like we're not getting our needs met by our spouse. Struggling in school. It's not going well. You know, graduation's like in a week and a half and we're not so sure we're going to make it. But then, God, why are you failing me? And you see, we get impatient and we don't trust God's goodness. And we want Him to meet it, our needs now. And we take the good gifts that He has given us and we scorn them. Okay, that's putting God to the test because it's not trusting His provision. Maybe you're a high school student or you're single and you think, you know, I can't even imagine how long it's going to be before I can have sex the way God wants me to have sex. I can't wait that long. See, that is, Paul says, when you have that attitude, you are putting God to the test because you are saying His goodness is not enough. Dangerous stuff. Finally, he says, um, the last thing that they did Uh, He says, and don't grumble as some of them did, uh, for that is why God sent his angel of death to destroy them. Last thing they did is they grumbled and complained, murmured. Uh, This is is 
um, basically gossip. Uh, if you look in this story, they were mostly grumbling about Moses. Uh, it's, it's again, it's not trusting the things that God has provided to help us and guide us. Uh, it's leaders, it can be other Christians. You know, a, a great pastime at lunch on Sunday is to complain about the pastor. Good hobby. Okay? It can, it can go, it can, it can extend from Sunday school teachers to elders. Okay? It can, it can mean our boss, it can mean our spouse, it can mean our teachers, or our husband or our wife. It's grumbling about other people. And it's saying, God, you don't know what you're doing. What did you do putting, why did you make him the pastor? Why did you make him the boss? I should be the boss. And ultimately it's saying this, it's saying, God, I am smarter than you are. If you would just listen to me and follow my advice, things would go much better. Just listen to me, and when God doesn't listen to us, we complain, we grumble, we murmur. We don't like what he's doing. Okay, also, it doesn't work too well. And Paul says, these are all written for our example. Don't go down these paths. Okay? Instead, he says, we need to resist, we need to stand up to these temptations. And he identifies all of these things as tests or temptations. And he says, this is how you fight back. He says, remember that temptations or testing come into your life and they are no different than what any other person experiences. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. And when you are tempted, he will show you a way out, a way of escape, so that you can live under it, bear it. Um, He says basically, don't be stupid. And here's four, here's four steps, in case you're wondering. Here's four steps to being stupid. Okay, step one. Tell yourself, I'm strong, I can handle it. Okay, tell yourself, you know, I can handle sin. I, I'm bulletproof. You know, I'm spiritual. I read my Bible. Uh, if I go to the bar where there's prostitutes hanging out, it's not a problem for me because I'm spiritual. So that's what the Corinthians were saying. They said, we can go to these parties where they're having, you know, meat offered to idols because we have freedom in Christ. And you know, the fact that there's prostitutes and lots of drinking and alcohol and uh, de- you know, demons and evil spirits and all this kind of stuff, not a problem for me. Because I'm strong. And I'm not going to be affected by it. Okay, that would be step one to being stupid. Step two, live in denial that you are just like everybody else. Paul says, all these temptations are part of the human condition. Okay, everybody is tempted. Moses, David, Paul says, I'm tempted. Everybody is tempted. Okay? If you, if you live in denial that you are vulnerable to the same temptations as everybody else, okay, that would be step two to being stupid. Step three, ignore God's faithfulness. Okay? Tell yourself, I've got to do this on my own because God's probably not really paying attention right now. Okay? He says, God is faithful. God wants to provide for you help in the midst of your temptation. Uh, fourth step to being stupid, don't take the way out. Okay, how does God show his faithfulness? He shows his faithfulness in every temptation or test by giving us a way out, giving us a way of escape. All right? Okay, the really stupid thing to do is to ignore God's way out. Okay, guaranteed way to failure. When God says, this is the way to avoid the temptation, big arrows this, this way, and you ignore the arrow and you go that way. Okay, certain end of uh, way to walk off the cliff. 
He says, instead, be smart. He says, well, what is the way? Well, the way is simply this. He says, so my dear friends, run! <laughs> Flee from idol worship. Run. Run, just run. Okay, how do, you, how do you deal with temptation? He says, it's really simple. You run. You put on your track shoes, and you run away from it. Okay? What are the weak areas of your life? Are you a grumbler? Are you one who's given to being critical and, and negative and complaining? Are you one who's just always discouraged and depressed or angry at your circumstances? Are you one who's given to immorality or to greed or to materialism? What's the solution? Well, he says, run the other direction. Okay? Don't put yourself in the way of sin. Get distance yourself from it. Now it's true we live constantly on this rocky ledge. We live constantly on this mountain where there's a cliff that we can take one step off. Okay? The trick is not to get as close to the edge as you can. Now I kind of like living there. I mean when I go rock climbing and mountain climbing, I love being on that edge. I love hanging my toes over and just testing fate, you know. I love that because it's an adrenaline rush. Okay, well, when you're out climbing, you can do that. In life, don't. Okay? Distance is better. Now, now my wife, she's much more, uh, she does not like heights, and so when we're on a cliff edge, she's 30 feet away while I'm hanging my toes over the edge, and, uh, you know, she's smarter. That's the thing. Distance. Okay, that's the principle. We need to distance ourselves from things that, that would be a test. It would be a temptation. Now you say, well, you know, not everything you can distance yourself from. I mean, you can stay away from sexual sins. You can, you know, be careful what you look at on TV or movies or the Internet. You can not go to bars where there's prostitutes. You know, you can, uh, if you're dating, you can go to public places where you know there's lots of lights and lots of other people. It's a good thing if you're dating girls. Guys, okay, you got that lights, people. Okay, dark places, lonely, bad. That's, that's, distance yourself from that. Run. Run the other way. But there are some things that you can't distance yourself from. Okay, what about my circumstances? What if I am in the midst of a financial difficulty or physical problems or an illness? How do you run from that? Okay, what if God has brought into our life a test that uh, we can't run away from? Well, God says that for every test or for every temptation, there is a way that he gives so that we can endure it. Important word there, endure it. God doesn't always take it away. God does not always remove the temptation or test from us. But he promises in his faithfulness to always give us a way to bear it. What is that way? Well, ultimately, I believe it is going to the rock and drinking often from Christ. Oftentimes, God brings those tests in our life precisely to drive us back to that, drive us back to Him, to bring us back to that place where we desperately call upon Him. The problem for Israel wasn't that they they were getting these things; it was that they weren't enjoying them. They got to a place where the food and the manna and the water, the spiritual blessings, were no longer a joy to them. We can get to that same place where we take for granted the spiritual blessings of God in our life and we no longer enjoy Him. We no longer live 
in the love and, and joyous relationship with him that he desires. And sometimes he tests us to see if we will endure because we are confident he alone is the answer. That's what it means to be tested. It means to check where we are. Are we really following him and loving him? Or are we just going through the motions? Sometimes it takes a test to determine the difference. Um, <clears throat> Paul ends with, the, uh, uh, with these words. He says, My dear friends, flee from the worship of idols. You are reasonable people. Decide for yourself if what I am about if what I am about to say is true. When we bless the cup at the Lord's table, aren't we sharing in the benefit of the blood of Christ? Yes or no? We share at the Lord's table. Are we sharing in the benefit of Christ's blood? Yes or no? Yes. The answer would be yes. <laughs> we share in his benefit of his blood. When we break the bread, aren't we sharing in the benefits of the body of Christ? Yes or no? Okay, very good. And we, we eat from one loaf, showing that we are one body. And think about the nation of Israel, who all ate the sacrifices, um, who all eat of the sacrifice, I'm sorry, all who eat of the sacrifices are united by that act. Okay, here's the principle. We, we take the Lord's Supper, we, we share the bread together, taking communion, in doing that, we participate with Christ. We become co-takers of the person of Christ. And we do that corporately. We take communion together because corporately we share together Jesus. Okay, he's using this as an example, as an illustration. Here's the illustration. What am I saying? Well, I am saying that the idols to whom the pagans bring sacrifices are real gods and these sacrifices are of some value. Is that what I'm saying? No. Not at all. What I'm saying is this. These sacrifices are not offered simply to idols. They are offered to demons, not to God. And I don't want any of you to be partakers with demons or partners with demons. You cannot drink from the cup of the Lord and from the cup of demons too. You cannot eat at the Lord's table and at the table of demons. Paul closes with this amazing argument. He says this. He says that when we look to idols to satisfy us, to meet needs in our life, to delight in and pleasure in, to play with, to dance with, we ultimately are entering into partnerships with demons. He says the idols are not real, the gods they represent are not real, but what's behind all that is the, the forces of darkness, the spiritual forces of evil, of Satan and his demons. Okay, is sin anything to mess with? He says that when you give in to temptation and you sin, you are ultimately offering worship to demons. He says, how can you take God's cup and take the cup of demons at the same time? You can't. You can't do that. He said that is why Israel got strung out across the desert. That's why Israel died in the wilderness void of God's blessing in their life. And the reality is true for us as well. God wants us to live in the promised land. Not just in heaven, but here and now. He wants to fill us with the fullness of his joy and goodness. But the thing that will kill it, the thing that will disqualify that blessing from our life, 
is if we allow ourselves to be tempted and to fall into sin. Now the good news for us, uh, unfortunately this didn't work for Moses. Moses fell into sin. He never made it to the promised land. The good news for us is that Jesus Christ's death on the cross is big enough to give grace and forgiveness to all of us. You may say, you know, I think I, I think just this last, I think yesterday, in fact, I gave in and I allowed sin into my life. I felt there's grace in Christ. There is forgiveness and grace and He wants to restore us to a place of blessing. But we can't make sin something we play with. It doesn't work that way. We must commit to following Him and having every need met in Christ. If we fall, we fall. We must confess, take it seriously. But seek Him. Uh, Drink from the rock, the well, the living water that's Christ. Let's pray. Father, we just uh, thank you that you, in so many ways, pour out your blessing in our life. You give us good gifts. You give us good things. Uh, Material blessings, friends. uh, You've given us peace and joy. Lord, I pray that we would uh, learn to be so thankful for those gifts. And to see not only their material blessing, but see how they represent the joyous love of a father who delights in giving good gifts to his children. That you are a God who cannot wait to pour out your blessings in our life because you love us that much. And you delight in us being happy. You want us to party before you because we are so enthralled and overjoyed at your love for us. And Father, you hate it when we take that love and worship and, and really prostitute ourselves by giving it to another God. Father, help us to see that that's what sin is. That ultimately it is all idol worship. It's all seeking to have our life sustained by something other than you. Lord, we are weak We are all human. We are all one step away from great failure. And probably all of us have fallen, probably not all that long ago. And so, Father, we need your grace. We need your forgiveness for our grumbling and complaining, for our craving and longing, things of this world. Father, we confess these sins before you. And thank you that by the blood of Christ, if we turn, you will forgive. And you'll give us your grace. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.